Good morning, Wisconsin. So let's pour that coffee and talk to some experts about what's going on in Milwaukee, Madison, Washington, and beyond. Broadcasting live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue in beautiful downtown Milwaukee. It's the Political Power Hour on WTMJ. Here's your host, Steve Scafidi. Should we talk about the government? Yes, from beautiful downtown Milwaukee with a beautiful weather day as well. Let's get right to it. Joining us on the Tri-County Contracting Hotline, former columnist, I think he's a current columnist, actually, at the Journal Sentinel, Craig Gilbert, and a fellow at Lubar Center at Marquette Law School. Good morning, Craig. Good morning. So we have spent on this program and many programs in the state of Wisconsin, radio, TV, and certainly the uh, the newspapers, talking about the redistricting battle in the state of Wisconsin. Years of fighting about this, and it all comes down to basically what I said last week was, well, the legislature passed maps and Governor Evers signed them. Any of that surprise you, or I guess the question is, what does that all mean? So I guess the surprise would be... Um... You know, I was kind of expecting, I think a lot of people were expecting this to be a court-imposed map. Mm-hmm. And and obviously, the reason Republicans in the legislature ended up passing a map, the map that they did, the governor's map, was because the prospect of the court picking a map they liked even less was hanging over them. But so the way the way it kind of happened and unfolded in the end with the Republicans saying, okay, we don't like any of these maps, but we think the governor's map uh, is not as bad for us as some of the other maps. Um, and we can talk a little bit more about that. Um, and then the governor really having to sign sign it because it was his map. Um, so I think the, you know, the big event here was obviously the Supreme Court election um, last year that created a liberal majority on a court that had had a conservative majority for so long and, and they're revisiting the maps, rejecting the current map or the old map. And, uh, that was the decider in all of this. That meant we were going to get maps that were, that created a more level playing field, a much more level playing field in Wisconsin than we've seen for the past 12, 13 years. Could, could I describe it as fear of the unknown? They didn't know how bad. From the Republican perspective, these, uh, no, these... I think it was known. They knew, you know, there were four, there were six maps before the court. There was there was the map that the Republican legislators kind of put out, which was very similar to the old maps, which mm-hmm. you know locked in massive Republican majorities. There was a, a conservative leaning map that um, basically, you know, made it extremely difficult for Democrats to win a majority, but it wasn't quite as lopsided as the. Republican lawmakers maps. And then there were four maps that all kind of aspired to be level playing fields, 50-50 maps. The differences among those four maps, including the governor's map, were not dramatic. Um, but there were ways in which, you know, there were other maps that were a little bit better for the Democrats on the governor's map. And particularly, there's this one issue of the state Senate. Uh, the state Senate has staggered elections, um, which means that roughly half the state Senate has already was already chosen in 2022 and Republicans won 12 of those 17 seats. So they had a big leg up going into the 2024 cycle, even under the new maps and under the governor's map, it would have been all but impossible for Democrats to take back the state Senate in 2024. They would have had a chance to do it 
down the road in 26 or 28. Um, but there was another map, at least one other map, that was before the court that would have actually given the Democrats a shot to win back the state Senate in 2024. And that's certainly something the Republicans did not want to see happen. So who blinked here? Who gave in? Well, I mean, in a sense, both sides did. Republicans blinked um, by swallowing hard and adopting the governor's maps. The governor, you could argue, was sort of backed into a corner in the sense that they were his maps. He had to sign them, even though some Democrats liked another map better. Um, But what we got was, you know, what we would have gotten under multiple maps, which is we got a, a, a maps in which each party has a chance to win control of the legislature, certainly the assembly in 2024 and the state Senate after 2024. Um, and, and the differences beyond that are not great. The other piece of this is that there could still be more litigation. And so you could argue that it was a victory for the Democrats to have the legislature do what it did and have a legislated map as opposed to a court-imposed map, because it's possible that a court-imposed map would have been, you know, easier to challenge, you know, easier for, for to challenge in court in the aftermath. It's harder to challenge a legislative map. I mean, it was signed by a Democratic governor and, and approved by a Republican legislature, and that courts like to give some deference to that. So it's kind of, it's a real mixed bag and, um, and it's not over in the sense that um, it's still quite possible that someone could litigate this further in federal court. It's not going to happen in state court um, and, and try to play out the string and that, you know, there's a scenario under which that could delay the implementation of the maps for the 2024 cycle. I'm not saying it's likely, I'm just saying it's possible. Yeah, I had the governor on last week, Governor Tony Evers, and he alluded to that. He goes, yeah, in the state, no, but at the federal level, certainly you throw the threat of a lawsuit or, or a challenge to these maps that could, I guess, play out that it, it doesn't get quantified and, and set in stone by the time we're actually voting. Yeah, so that's, you know, again, that's something, wait and see on that one. Um, I mean, it's kind of ironic because, you know, when there was a conservative majority on the state Supreme Court, Republicans wanted to litigate this in state court and Democrats wanted to litigate it in federal court. And now the shoe's on the other foot. And so we're talking about the exact inverse situation. Um, And of course, the ultimate arbiter on the federal side is the U.S. Supreme Court. But the U.S. Supreme Court, you know, even though it has a strong conservative majority, um, has been kind of low to to intervene when, like I said, when there's a legislated map. And so you wouldn't expect the U.S. Supreme Court necessarily to be the one that that puts everything on hold. But, you know, it's possible it could happen um, at the federal level uh, short of the Supreme Court. My guest this morning, Craig Gilbert, columnist of the Journal Sentinel, also fellow at Lubar Center, Marquette Law School. If you can just hang out through the break, I want to ask a couple of questions about polling in Wisconsin. Obviously, Donald Trump winning South Carolina on Saturday. We've got some time between now and uh, between now and our primary what it all means with craig gilbert after this on the political power hour on wtmj joining us with political power hour this monday morning craig gilbert columnist the general sentinel fellow at lubar center marquette law school poll big win for donald trump yesterday and or saturday rather in south carolina 
Nikki Haley staying in the race. Let's talk about Wisconsin. The polling suggests from the MU Law School poll that Trump has a slight advantage over over a Joe Biden. But we have what eight months till the election, Craig? What do you What are you seeing? Yeah, I mean that's not too meaningful. Eight months before the election, I mean the the head scratching thing about this race is that you know we could go on and on about how. Joe Biden is a fatally flawed candidate, and we could go on and on about how Donald Trump's a fatally flawed candidate. Again, <laughs> not talking about their merits, but talking about their political liabilities. They clearly both have major political liabilities, and so you're left pondering whose weaknesses are weaker. And that's a tough, um, that's a tough thing to handicap. And so, uh, you know, right now, um, I think President Biden is certainly struggling in the polling. Um, in the national polling, he's got higher negatives even than Donald Trump. In the Wisconsin polling, they're both on a par. I mean, they're both like net negatives of, of you know between minus fifteen and minus twenty. And so you're kind of left in this situation, sort of where mathematically the deciding voters in the election is that group of voters, almost a fifth of the electorate that doesn't like either one of them. And then you get into these, you know, imponderable third party scenarios and you just sort of get into trying to figure out and forecast and predict the votes of people who don't like their choices, um, which means they're not locked into their choices, which means they can change their mind at any moment. And I don't think that's going to change too much between now and November. So for me, the wild cards are two things. Women, especially suburban women around Milwaukee and other places in the state, uh, and especially you talk about women's health and, and the abortion issue. And the other one is Haley supporters who absolutely don't want to and won't vote for Donald Trump. Those are big hurdles for the former president to jump over in terms of winning a general election. The, you know, the, the uh, nominations for the, for the, uh, for the run up to the nomination is one thing. Winning a general election, as Donald Trump learned in 2020, although some people still argue about those results, that's a much different scenario. I don't see that changing that much for those two reasons. One, women, and two, Haley supporters, Republicans who absolutely detest Donald Trump. Yeah, so there's always been two ways to look at the results of these Republican primaries and caucuses. And one is that, you know, Donald Trump is just sort of cruising toward the Republican nomination. But the other way is that if you think of him as the de facto incumbent president in his party, um, you know, we're consistently seeing 40 or 50 percent of Republican primary voters vote against him. And, and that you, is perfectly fair to view that as a sign of weakness. Now, some of those people voting against him, you know, aren't hardcore Republicans. A few of them are Democrats. A lot of them are independents. But still, um, we know we know that there's a portion of the electorate, even the traditional Republican electorate, that really, really doesn't want to vote for him, for Donald Trump. And so, yes, I think it's I think you're on the money with that. And you're on the money with um, when you're talking about women and suburban voters in particular um, being a real Achilles heel for Donald Trump. And it's not just the polling. We have every election cycle since he was elected president where we've seen a Republican margins uh, shrink in the classic Republican outer suburbs of Milwaukee and also Democratic margins grow in the purple and blue suburbs uh, inner suburbs of Milwaukee and Madison, that's a pretty, that's been a pretty relentless trend. So again, it's, it's kind of hard with every one of these election cycles just to put together a path to statewide victory for Republicans without at least, um, holding the line in those, among those suburban voters and not losing 
more ground. Do you get the sense that when you look at polling now, and I've had Charles Franklin on the show a number of times in the last few months, that polling now doesn't really tell us a lot about polling in November? Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, on the one hand, you know, there's not a lot of wiggle room uh, in the sense that with these two candidates uh, that we look like we think we're getting, um, you know, they're. I think it's per, it's very predictable that it's going to be a close election. It would be different if, you know, Nikki Haley were the Republican nominee and all the polling is suggesting she would have a huge advantage over Donald Trump over, over Joe Biden. Uh, or it might be different if Joe Biden hadn't decided to run for reelection and there was some, you know, Democrat who, who was a reasonable candidate and he were facing Donald Trump and that might not be a nail biter too. Um, so in that sense, the polls, you know, from month to month may not be telling us much more than the results of the 2020 election, the last time these two candidates faced off against each other. And so they're not polls are not precise enough as instruments to tell you, you know, which side is going to win a very, very close election. They're just not that good. And no one should expect them to be that good. And then on top of everything else, you know, we don't know what's going to happen in the world between now and then. So. Again, I think we're, we're, we are where we are, and I think it's probably good advice not to get too caught up in whether it's a two-point Trump lead or a two-point Biden lead at this point. The amazing thing about it is, of course, Trump could take a beating in the, in the, in the national numbers, he could take a real beating in, in how many people voted for Biden versus Trump, but he could win enough swing states to be the president of the United States. That's the fascinating thing to me. You win the right in the right places with the right numbers, you could squeak by and be reelected as president, you know, with a one Biden term separating your two, uh, the two terms you had. That, that's a fascinating part of politics to me. Yeah, the six states that matter were all close in 2020, but they were all won by Biden over Trump and Wisconsin, obviously, among them. So you just have all sorts of possibilities when you think about pathways to an electoral college victory and which combination of states either candidate has to win. Certainly, if Biden won the, 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 the so-called blue wall states of Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, that would be enough. And then there's other combinations that come into play. And we haven't really even talked about um, other things that could happen between now and November, including A, things that are going to happen in the courtroom involving that, Donald Trump. That was my last B, question. <laughs> That's another yeah, wild card. Given the, just obviously given their age, which is, you know, on everybody's mind, you know, a health event affecting either candidate. Do you think, you know, because I've talked about this a lot, the, the, the Trump trials and all these different cases, uh, civil and criminal, but there's a lot of Trump supporters who could care less. And I was watching a lot of network TV over the weekend, and basically when they did, you know, on the street interviews, folks were saying, "I don't care about any of that. I would wouldn't change my vote for the most part." That that's yeah, also that's clear. also fascinating. Yeah, and it's pretty clear that it's actually probably strengthened him amongst a lot of Republican voters w- with respect to winning the Republican nomination. But that's not the issue. The issue is, are there general election voters out there um, who would have trouble, um, who would have even more trouble voting for Donald Trump if he were convicted? And you know, those people will exist. It's just a question of how many of them there are. Greg Gilbert, columnist of General Sentinel, fellow at Lubar Center Marquette Law School. Always a pleasure to talk to you. We'll do it again down the road. Absolutely. Anytime.